Well, it's such a joy to be with you guys this morning. Before moving to New England, I worked in apartment maintenance for four years. And I supervised about 100, 124 apartments, and most of those were built in the 1960s. So as you can imagine, we spent a lot of time updating, remodeling, trying to get our apartment complex looking like something that people would want to live in. And if you know anything about remodeling, you know that it's never as easy as you think it'll be. Often you hope what, is a simple, what you want to be, a simple swap of old things with the new, becomes much bigger over time. We would begin to remove bathroom vanities only to find <sighs> hidden water damage. After we would start to poke on the wall, we'd realize the drywall was so rotted, the whole wall had to be replaced. And then when you'd open the wall, you'd see the plumbing, and you'd be like, I've got to replace all the plumbing now. At every turn, we would almost be wincing our eyes, hoping, please don't let the problem go any deeper. But inevitably, it always did. Now, the nation of Israel is a lot like that during the time of 1 Samuel. For Samuel overlaps with the end of the book of Judges, which tells us in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Rather than doing what's right in God's sight, the people were ignoring God, making a wreck of their community with sin and selfishness. Israel was in need of renovation and spiritual renewal. But as we will see, when the walls are opened up, the issue is deeper than just the people. The priests and the prophets are rotten or absent altogether. There is an issue with the foundation because they lead the people and they lead in the worship of God. So we're going to see how God handles these deep issues of renovation and renewal within the people of Israel. Now, as we look at the Israel remodeling project, if you would, I want you to consider your own life. If the walls of your heart were opened, what would be found there? Are there any issues? And how deep do those issues go? We're going to see that the way God works in the midst of the people of Israel is the same way he works in the lives of people today. So with that in mind, I want to turn to our passage. If you have your bulletin handy, you'll find a sermon outline in there. Today in 1 Samuel 2 and 3, we're going to see a faithful priest provided, in chapter 2. Then we'll see a faithful prophet provided in chapter 3. And third, we'll look at a greater priest and prophet provided for us. So if you would, look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned... The priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest, priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, 
then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sins of the young men were very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Now in 1 Samuel, up to this point, there is a barren woman named Hannah who has desperately wanted to bear a son. Hannah vows that if God will give her a son, she'll actually offer that son to the Lord to serve as a priest. Through the blessing of Eli, the priest, Hannah does conceive and bear a son named Samuel. And after Samuel is weaned and old enough, his parents Elkanah and Hannah entrust their miraculous son to Eli and Shiloh. And now they're returning home to Ramah, as we see in verse 11. Now, this miraculous son is contrasted with the, er, the worthless sons of Eli. Now, why are they worthless? The text says, because they do not know the Lord. When you see that the priests of God do not know God, you should know that that's a huge problem. I mean, what do priests do? Do they not represent sinful people to a holy God by being ritually sanctified and offering sacrifices on behalf of the people? Their job is to mediate between man and God, and yet these priests don't know God. That is a deep issue. This scenario would be like you or I being sued, and we grab a lawyer to mediate our case, but we find out that the lawyer really doesn't know what he's doing, and he doesn't know the people involved. And now we're standing in court, and he's representing us terribly. That would be terrible. We would hate for that to happen. By definition, mediators need to know the persons involved and know how to represent one to the other. And so the issue goes deeper than just the people in Israel. Even the priests are corrupt. Eli's sons, the priests of Israel, do not know the God of Israel. And these sons show their worthlessness in how they act. We see that in verses 12 through 17. It tells us they are profaning the sacrifices, treating the Lord's sacrifices with contempt. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have complete disregard for how God's word in Leviticus says sacrifices are to be treated. The priests were to offer up sacrifices in a very specific and reverential way. And from the animal sacrifice, both the priests and the prophets were apportioned some of the meat to eat. But Eli's sons had a sinful custom of taking more than God's provision for them. They would have their servants come and claim more meat with that three-pronged fork and grab a lot for themselves. In the process of this, they both disregarded the Lord's will and denied the worshipers their portion of the meat. What's more, in verses 15 through 17, they teach us, these verses teach us that the priests would steal other prime cuts. They didn't want just boiled meat. They want to be able to cook it however they want. They wouldn't even perform the ritual sacrifice in the right order, it says. We know from Leviticus, you're supposed to burn the fat first, then eat the meat. This this represents honoring God first and then partaking in the sacrifice. And even in the face of Israelites who tried to correct their pastors and priests, they don't listen. They disregard the people and they threaten to take the meat by force. And yet the sin goes deeper. Jump down with me to verse 22 real quick. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? 
for I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Here we learn that not only are the sons of Eli profaning the sacrifices, they're sleeping with the women at the place of worship, committing sexual immorality with those who are trying to serve God. And the word is spreading all throughout Israel. This is not a secret sin that only a few people know about. This is the gossip of Israel, which now includes Eli as a part of the problem. We see in 1 Samuel 4.18 that Eli, their dad, is not only a priest, but he judged Israel in those days. That means that Eli had the authority to stop his sons and at a minimum at least remove them from their priestly duties. Obviously, you can't stop your child from sinning, but you can remove them from being the priest of God. And rather than removing them, he half-heartedly rebukes them in verse 25. But the sons don't listen to the father. Verse 25 ends by saying, But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Like Pharaoh in Egypt, who had hardened his heart to God, hardened his heart to God, God confirms his rejection by hardening, hard, hardening Pharaoh in that rebellion. So here we have Hophni and Phinehas. They've rejected God, and now God hardens them in their rebellion, and he wills their refusal to repent and their impending judgment. Things are really bad in Israel. When you've got language that reminds you of Pharaoh in Egypt, this willing of God, things are very bad. As the walls are opened up, the issue is deeper than just unfaithful people doing what's right in their own eyes. The priests are more profane than the people. You almost see here that the the people are acting better when they say, hey, could you at least do the sacrifice right? No, it's terrible in Israel. So how does God respond when the walls of Israel are opened up? Go back up with me to 2, 18 and 19. The word here says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Now these verses may seem simple, maybe even insignificant, but they're actually very significant for this story. The boy, Samuel, is ministering before the Lord. And what is he wearing? He's wearing the linen ephod. Samuel is wearing the priestly ephod, which is the garment worn by the priests as they represent the people of Israel to God. We see here that that God is not abandoning his people. Yes, there's lots of bad going on, but he's providing hope to the people. There's a new priest in town. Though Samuel is not of the Levitical lineage that began with the house of Aaron and in the days of Moses, Samuel is serving as a priest. In the spiritual barrenness of Israel, God visits his people and he provides a faithful priest to them. And the blessing of God is also seen in Hannah's life, which I believe is a picture of what God is up to in Israel. Though barren for years before the birth of Samuel, look with me at verse 21. It reads, Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah 
And she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. We've got this contrast going on between the two. This chapter of 1 Samuel is like a book or movie with multiple plot lines that are jumping back and forth between. We have the worthless sons of Eli over here, and we got the decline of Israel. But meanwhile, over here, we have Samuel growing, being chosen by God. Hope is being born in the story. Now, I just want to stop right here. And I want to say, this passage is teaching us that there is always hope for God's people. As one commentator put it, we will not be too discouraged over Hophni and Phinehas so long as we see little Samuel walking around at Shiloh. In the midst of barrenness and brokenness, God works out his sovereign salvation plan for the good of people. I want you to see how God's word is seeking to foster hope for us. The back and forth in chapter 2 is to do that thing. We start in 2.11 with Samuel serving before the Lord. Then in verses 12 through 17, we see the sons of Eli. And then we go back to Samuel serving the Lord. And then we jump to 22 through 25 and we see the sons of Eli. And then if we go to verse 26, we see Samuel continue to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. This author is trying to show us that hope is coming for God's people. That contrast, we want, I want that to stick out in your mind that in all the issues that are seen, God is at work to foster hope in his people. God is a God of renewal and redemption. He's working redemption for those who've rebelled against him. He's putting in place someone who can mediate a relationship from man to God. Now, I don't know where you are today, but I want you to know based on this passage, However messy and lamentable your life is right now, when God opens the walls, he doesn't just close them and say, I don't want anything to do with that. No. He rolls up his sleeves. He gets to work for our redemption. As long as there's a miraculous son who would walk among us and minister before the Lord as our priest, there is hope for every one of us. So God, in providing the people with a faithful priest, we see that something has to also happen because we have this unfaithful priestly lineage. They've got to be dealt with. As I mentioned earlier, Eli won't do anything about the, sons, anything about the sins of his son, and so God has to do something about it. Look with me at verse 27. Verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Yes. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Yes. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I, may, that I commanded for my dwelling? And why do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. 
and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God has provided Samuel, and now we see God removing the rot and the mold that is Eli and his household. He's ridding Israel of them. We learn that an unknown man of God comes to Eli with a word of judgment from the Lord. We're not told this prophet's name nor his genealogy. In many ways, he reminds us of Melchizedek, the priest who came, the prophet who came to Abraham with God's word of blessing. This prophet is unknown without father, mother, or genealogy. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life, and he shows up to give God's word to Eli. And it's a word of judgment. God starts by saying that through the prophet, he has been gracious to Eli's house. Did you know those rhetorical questions? Notice those at the beginning. When Israel was in Egypt, God rescued them. When when it was time to bring the people together and have priests, he chose the Levitical line to have them serve before the Lord. But not only did he save them and use them in the service of offerings, he also supplies their every need because they receive their food from the sacrifices and the offerings. But we see that in the midst of all of that grace, Eli's sons have treated the the offering of the Lord with contempt. And Eli is honoring his sons above God and not putting an end to their rebellion. Therefore, in verse 30, it says, God will no longer honor this priestly line, but will honor those who honor him. And God will go on to say in verse 34 that the sign of this judgment will be that Hophni and Phinehas will die on the very same day. Their swift deaths will show that God is one day putting to death this priestly line. God honors those who honor him above others. Now, this temptation to honor others above God is not unique to Eli. I think that temptation is before all of us this morning. Maybe he wanted his sons to have a job and provision, so he didn't want to take away something from them. Maybe Eli thought that they would eventually turn over a new leaf. Perhaps Eli is losing sight of the holiness of God and that Israel needs leaders. Whatever it is, his eyes are not on the Lord, they're on his children. The takeaway for us is that we don't want to have a relationship in which we honor others over God. And that's not always easy. There are relationships that we have in which our connection with the person can lend towards us changing the way we look at things. They're influential in our lives. Some of you may have adult children like Eli, and perhaps they're walking in a way that's displeasing to the Lord. They're calling evil good and good evil. And for the sake of the relationship, you're tempted to affirm or overlook those sinful choices. Honor them above God by changing the way you think, believe, or act. And it's tough. It's super tough. But I, don't, but I want you to know, we don't want to walk in the sins of Eli. We want to honor God as our Lord. We want to put him first so that we might be honored by him, him who is working out not just judgment but our redemption. We want to honor God above others. He's doing a work of salvation. In fact, our unknown man of God tells us something more is coming than just judgment. Would you look with me at verses 35 and 36? And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest 
who shall do according what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. Here we see what I think is probably the climax of chapters 2 and chapter 3. God is promising to provide a greater priest. Now, this prophecy has layers. He says someone's coming, but with God, things happen over and over again. They cycle around, and we see it again and again and again and again. The first fulfillment, I think, of this, or the near fulfillment, is Samuel. As God is removing the household of Eli, is he not raising up Samuel? Samuel will walk in and out before the king, King David. And yet, at another level, there's still more fulfillment to be had. In the times of, of Solomon, King Solomon, there's a priest that is appointed who is replacing someone of Eli. In, second, in 1 Kings chapter 2, we learn that Solomon banishes an unfaithful priest, and he's left to dwindle in his own little place, longing for a loaf of bread. It says that King Solomon raises up Zadok to be a priest, and this is what we read in 1 Kings 2.27. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. And yet even that is not the greatest fulfillment. The Lord keeps speaking through this prophecy because Samuel and Zadok will grow old and die. The people need an eternal priest. God promises to provide one who will walk out in walk in and out forever. He's not going to be one after the order of Aaron and Eli. No. He's going to be like Samuel, a non-Levite priest. This coming priest will wear an ephod as a representative of the people, and he will forever mediate that relationship between our holy God and humanity. God is making a promise that goes even beyond the days of Samuel and Solomon. There is a king, uh, a king who will be a priest and a prophet, and he will be forever our mediator. The deeper we look behind the walls of Israel, God reveals to us that he's willing to provide whatever it takes to bring sinful humanity back into right relationship with him. However, there's still one more issue that we need to find as we look behind the walls of Israel. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Here the author tells us that not only are there unfaithful priests present in Israel, but Israel is also absent of prophets. We have our unknown man in chapter 2, but we're told here that he was the exception, not the rule. Because of Israel's disobedience, God has stopped sending them prophets for a while. And this, again, is a deep issue. Prophets are those who reveal God's word to humans, and so silence here is deadly. God going silent on Israel is like when two people are trying to work through an issue and one of them goes silent. That's never a good thing. It means that there is an irreconcilable barrier in between them and one is giving up on the relationship. 
Now, in this case, God isn't sinning by being silent, and he's not giving up on the relationship ultimately. No, he's really just being silent for the sake of the relationship. He wants Israel to finally recognize that he hasn't been talking so that they can look to him and hear his word again. That silence ceases in verse 2. Would you look at that with me? At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli, and he said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So what we see here in chapter 3 is that the Lord is breaking the silence by speaking to Samuel. However, Samuel doesn't understand who's talking to him. He thinks it's Eli. He thinks Eli's talking to him in the middle of the night and as a parent of young kids, this reminds me of what it's like with our girls. It's oftentimes we have a girl get up out of bed, wake us up in the middle of the night and say, hey, daddy, I need something. And in the moment, you're just, you're focused on not being frustrated with them. And you're just saying, right, go, go back to bed. You'll be fine till the morning. I think that's what's happening here with Eli. Eli is having one of those really, really rough nights. Young Samuel has come to him three times. The first two times, Eli says, Samuel, go back to bed. I'm not calling you. However, the third time, Eli realizes, probably because he's already wide awake, oh, something else is happening. It's the Lord calling out to Samuel. So Eli tells Samuel that if this happens again, address the Lord and say that you're listening. So starting in verse 10, we see that the Lord stands and calls out to Samuel again. Now this time, Samuel knows, who, Samuel knows who is talking to him. Now God's word to Samuel is essentially the same as what the unknown man of God had relayed, relayed to Eli in chapter 2. God tells Samuel in verse 13, And I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Now, I don't know about you, but as a young boy, this would be a very tough assignment from the Lord. As a newly appointed prophet, Samuel has to relay this word to Eli. And for his first assignment, Samuel has a choice. He can either honor God or honor the man who has been a father and mentor to him. Look with me at how Samuel responds, starting in verse 15. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said again, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. 
And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, 1, and the word of the Lord came, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Here we see Samuel have that choice, right? He's afraid to tell Eli the prophecy, but praise be to God, Samuel chooses to honor God above Eli. And Eli continues in his half-hearted ways. He passively, passively resigns to receive God's judgment. I think for us, we're tempted to look at Eli's reception of God's will and think, wow, he's actually being pious. But with Eli's poor track record so far, I don't think that the author of 1 Samuel is intending us to commend Eli's response. If anything, Eli should be pleading for God's mercy. It should be a little bit like King Hezekiah, if you remember that story. Do you remember how King Hezekiah was told he was going to die? It was from a prophet. But rather than resigning to it, he pleads with the Lord for mercy, and he finds favor with God. That's what Eli should be doing. But at every turn, he keeps making mistakes. We don't see Eli, the priest, acting like a priest ought. And so now our passage concludes with a new prophet in town. He's been provided and he's been established by God and he isn't afraid to honor God above men. This is incredibly good news for the people of God. In a fractured relationship between God and humanity, God raises up a faithful prophet who can speak on his behalf to the people. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. Israel has rejected and offended God. They've stopped their ears like Hophni and Phinehas, and God has gone silent as they reject him. But he doesn't, say, he doesn't stay silent forever. His silence may last through the night, but he speaks again in the morning through Samuel. Psalm 30, verse 5, His anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The word of the Lord is no longer rare in those days. God's judgment and grace is heard throughout all of Israel. It says from Dan to Beersheba. Dan's in the far north and Beersheba's in the south. Everyone is hearing that God is speaking again, and it's through Samuel. God's silence ceases with this prophetic son. With the walls opened up and the deeper issues exposed at every inspection, we see in this passage that God's grace goes deeper still for Israel. Now, I want to come back to the question I asked you at the beginning. If the walls around your heart were opened, what would be found there? Are there any issues? How deep do those issues go? I think that for many of us, when we begin to dig around in our hearts, there's a lot of things that we do not want to face. It's much like a house needing remodeling or Israel in this time period. With every glance, we notice that something isn't the way it ought to be, and it's just flat out painful to see how much work is needed. When we look at our sins, we just know there are many. And many of us are 
tempted to respond like Eli or Hophni and Phinehas, and we don't want to address the sin issues. We've all seen a demo day for a remodeling project. It's painful to watch everything gutted and removed from the place, but we know it's necessary for the renovation and the renewal of the home. I want to encourage you this morning to examine your heart, not turn away from the deep sin issues, but expose them. Recognize them, see them, don't close up the wall. Remember, the way God works in the midst of the people of Israel is the way he works in the lives of people today. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Brothers and sisters, friends here today, we need to know that though our sins are many, as we sang, God's mercy is more. And in Jesus Christ, we have a mediator who is greater than all our sin. Like Samuel, Christ was a miraculous son born of the Virgin Mary. Like Samuel, Luke 2.52 tells us that Christ walked among us and he grew in stature and favor both with God and man. Like Samuel, Christ came to Israel when there was no word of the Lord for some 400 years. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he spoke, God that is, spoke through his son in these last days. Christ is the greater prophet who came speaking God's word that we are to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ prophesied of his priestly sacrifice on the cross and of his resurrection three days later and God let none of his words fall to the ground. He rose from the, from the dead. Everything God, uh, Christ spoke, it came into being. Like Samuel, Christ is the priest after a different priestly order than the Levitical one. Hebrews chapter 7 teaches us that Christ became a priest after the order of Melchizedek, not on the basis of bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. And because Christ lives forevermore, he holds his priesthood permanently, making him the greater priest, greater priest we need. And consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since Christ always lives to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, God has provided a greater priest and prophet. He is greater than all our sins, and he is able to eternally save. Praise God that no matter how deep the sin goes, he meets our every need in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning, are you looking to the mediator for the renovation and redemption of your soul? We've seen how this passage calls us to hope in God and honor him above others, but that starts with looking to Christ for the salvation of our sin, from our sin and reconciliation to God. If you do not identify as a believer in Christ, I urge you this morning, look to the one whom God has provided for your redemption. To turn away from Christ is to act like Eli's household in this story. Don't go that route. God has provided a priest for you that you might be right with him. I'm asking you, come to Christ in repentance and faith today. For those of you who are looking to Christ for their salvation, I want to encourage you and spur you on to keep looking to Christ for your salvation. Every time you take a look at your life, you open the walls and you see the sin issues, remember, God has provided you a mediator 
Because your mediator was judged and punished in your place on the cross, God will not try to punish your sins again on you. No, because he rendered his justice on Jesus, God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a mediator. So please keep your heart tender in the Lord by confessing your sins and looking to Christ for your salvation and growth lest you begin to fade and drift and treat the sin offering of the Lord with contempt. This passage calls us to look to Christ as our great high priest, but it also calls us to look to Christ as our prophet, the one who gives us God's voice. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. There is no reasoning or opinions that we have or make that we do not filter through our faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you guys grew up in the days of bracelets that had the WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? I know those bracelets are silly, but honestly, the principle isn't far off from how we should be processing and thinking through life. The misery and suffering of Israel, and really this whole world, shows us what happens when humans do what's right in their own eyes. We don't want to do that. We want to do what's right in Christ's eyes, looking to him and wanting to hear from him in the scriptures that we might know how to live before God rightly. Is his voice the most important voice to you? When you're thinking through what to believe about God, when you're thinking about how to live, finances, relationships, careers, you name it, in your looking for a voice, is the voice of God in Christ contained in the scriptures the most important one to you? Let us honor his voice above the voices of others. And I got to say, let us not forget to let others know that God has spoken through his son. He's ceased the silence with the son. God has spoken at many times and in many, in many ways, but in these last days, God is speaking to us through the son. God wants his word of judgment and grace to go beyond Dan and Beersheba. Beersheba. He wants it to go to the ends of the earth. There is a day of judgment coming, but we are supposed to tell people that they don't have to be judged on that day. There is a time of favor and grace for those who will repent and believe in Jesus today. May we be a part of getting God's word to those in Maine, Connecticut, and every corner of the earth. As I close, I'm sure all of us have things going on in our heart. There's more than meets the eye. As we look behind the walls of our heart, we, we recognize that there's a lot to be done. There are sins to confess and put to death, lies to quit believing and truths to start believing. And we have a spiritual laundry list, a to-do list that is way too big. And we're all tempted to cover it up when we see what's inside. I hope you won't do that today. I want you to walk away with hope. God's mission is to work redemption in us. And he who begins a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, our priest and our prophet. So let us look to Christ, our mediator, who is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you're a God of renewal and redemption. Lord, we're so grateful that when you look upon our hearts and all the things are exposed, you don't run from us and say, I want nothing to do with that. Oh no, Lord, you go deeper still. 
You give us grace through the Lord Jesus Christ that we might be completely renewed and redeemed through him. Lord, as brothers and sisters who recognize that we are not where we want to be, I pray, Father, that you would help us to look to him for that daily growth in grace, longing for the day when that renewal and redemption will be finally complete, when the reno work of our hearts is done. Lord, for my friends here today who look upon their heart and the demo is much needed, I pray that they wouldn't close it up, but that they would look to Christ and that they would recognize that you have graciously given your son that they might have renewal and redemption in him. Oh God, please let my friends look to Christ today and be saved. Give us grace, O oh Lord. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.